0: Where are we in the book of Judges? Uh, So this whole time we've been, once again, using that analogy, we've been spiraling the toilet, kind of. We've been going down, down, down. We've been seeing the darkness of Israel left without a king to lead them in, in righteousness. And as they do what is right in their own eyes, they get more and more absorbed with the idolatrous cultures around them. They get further and further from true worship. And Jephthah takes us a little bit lower even now. And I think the the whole theme of this section of Scripture is God's increasing impatience with Israel's basically manipulation of their God. That they don't actually want to worship him. They don't want faithfulness. They want to kind of draw out his blessing. By doing the, the minimum required. By taking advantage of the, the God of the universe. And we're going to see this on various levels. That, that kind of saturates all of Israel. And it plays out on this large scale. It, it plays out in this particular portion of people. And then we're going to see it, how it plays out in this, this judge that we're focusing on, Jephthah. And ultimately, we, we see uh, that we cannot manipulate our God. But thankfully, we don't have to. We have this great God of grace and mercy who sacrifices himself for us. He doesn't demand of us that the sacrifices be paid for ourselves. We do not offer the sacrifice he does. And thankfully, we have this great anti-Jephthah. Jesus Christ, our true and ultimate king. So, there's a lot to go through today. We're looking at all of Judges 10 and 11. And this is like a brutal passage. So, uh, strap in and let's pray because we need an abundance of grace this morning. So, uh, (laughs) pray with me. Father, we praise you this morning. And we praise you knowing that a lot of the time we praise you um, so that we may have our true desires that are not you. And so, Father, we confess that this morning and we ask that you would uh, be showing that to our hearts. We ask that you would be um, working by your Spirit to help us understand this passage, to see the realities in it, and to help us love Jesus Jesus. And not use you or Jesus or the Holy Spirit towards another end. Father, would you convict us? Would you change us? And would you give us just great joy in the salvation that we have by grace in Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I'm going to skip some of this. But if you have Bibles open, uh, this is Judges 10 and 11. Uh, You can kind of follow along. Uh, I will not read all of it. All right. So what are we coming off of? We're coming off of Abimelech, this kind of fake pseudo-king. He kills 70 of his brothers, and he descends into darkness. And we have a little bit of uh, a reprieve from that. in Tola and Jer, these basically two sentences about them in Judges, and we move on. But we're now moving towards uh this darkest, even darker point in the life of Israel as they go deeper into idolatry than they ever have before. Look with me at verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. They crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. All right. We've seen again and again this flirting with idolatry, this movement towards idolatry. They're covenanting with, other, with uh, the Baals. And now, it's like they've gone whole hog. They're on the idol buffet here. It's just listing off this menagerie of all of the idols that they have gathered together. And it's not just that they're, they're gathering them. They're replacing the true God. They are not serving him anymore, they have replaced him with this assortment of idols. They're getting sucked deeper and deeper into the idolatry that characterizes this book. And so what happens? He, the Lord responds. And this time he sends the Ammonites to take over the, the kind of region just on the other side of the Jordan River. So we have all of Israel, the Jordan River, and we're fighting in here. The land on the western side. And here's what the people do. Here's what the people do. Verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and we serve the bowels. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? From the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. This is a shocking response from God. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, is this, is this a God that we would ever expect to hear that kind of answer from our God? Is this, is this the God that we know and serve? And when we, when we see things like this and we're well, oh, that doesn't sound like God. All right, we have two choices. We can say, I don't like this scripture and strike it out. Or just like emotionally disconnect from it. Like, well, that was a long time ago. That's different. Like we have happy God now. Or or we can change the way we think about our God. And we recognize, okay, there are realities here that don't sync with maybe a naive or a an incomplete view of who God is and what he looks like. And we see here that God is He is gracious, but He's not exclusively gracious. And He's also not a fool. He's an exacting God. He's a God who recognizes the difference between being placated and being worshipped. And he does call his people to faithfulness and to love for him and to serve him not just for the benefits they receive. And so he, he does say no to his people. He says no that No, I I see you in your idolatry. I see that I keep saving and saving and saving. And it's not coming. It's not getting through. And so this time, no. No, I'm not going to save. All right. Do we know that side of God? I think that side builds up this kind of fear of the Lord, this recognition of his great glory how much glory he deserves, that he is truly worthy of our worship and that he is truly king and God. That discipline is real and that consequences are real. And thankfully, because otherwise we'd have this God who is, who is giving us what, we're de- what we desire, but over here saying, yeah, but you're far from me. And I'm I'm ultimately going to cast you off. All right. Thankfully, we have this God who does call us back, even at, at with really dire consequences to do it. All right. We don't want to be those people who say, "Lord, Lord," and He turns and says, "Like I never knew you." That that would be the that's the greatest curse towards God's people. And He does not leave His people like that. Here. And this is their response. This is their response. How do they respond to him in that? Verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only, only please deliver us this day. So they put away from them the foreign gods that were among them and served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. All right, what do we think of their repentance? What do we think of it? All right, this reminds me of a teenager. All right, and you say, okay, you're grounded. And they say, okay, great, yeah, no, I, I get that. Okay, uh, there's a football game Friday, and like, well, what can I do to get there? I'll do the dishes, I'll like, I'll like, be nice to my sister now for like the next, (laughs) you know, 18 hours, (laughs) counting down. And we start to realize, okay, is that repentance? Or like, you know, uh, you can ground me later, and like, I know this is really bad, but like, I really need to get there, please. All right, that's Israel's response. And they realize, okay, like, I'll shape up for now. And yeah, we'll put away the idols, but it's not towards the end of heartfelt love to worship God. It's because they need immediate relief. They want immediate salvation. They want salvation in this day. And we see God's response here. He says he became impatient over the misery of Israel. All right, that's a super ambiguous way of saying it. Uh because that word misery, it's unclear exactly who it's talking about. And it can be either like he's, oh, like they're miserable and he's impatient with that. Or they are really tiresome and he's impatient with that. And I think those of you who had teenagers, uh, I think you, you understand that's probably more what it looks like. And I think that is how, how God responds. He's increasingly like impatient with his people's stubbornness and that they're, they're miserable to him in the sense that they just won't return. And they're toiling and they're toiling, but not towards the end of worship, towards the end of, of manipulating their God into doing what they want. That's what this, this story, that's the theme here. You don't want God You want to use him towards another end. Okay. Now that forces us to ask. Forces us to ask, uh, are we fickle in our worship? Are we fair weather Christians? Are we willing to basically use God towards a means, towards an end? But really, we don't want him. We want the idols. We want the idols of comfort and And pleasurable lives that stand before us. And we will use him if we have to. But he is not the end. Right? That is a great danger in the Christian life. It can even be a danger when we talk about, like, salvation, salvation, salvation. And we don't talk about worshiping Jesus and loving God. And delighting in him. And and what it means about him that he did that. There's a difference. Do we love him, or, or do we just want the gifts and, and he can leave now? <laughs> all right. So that's what this is about. That's what this is about. Do we really hate our idolatry? Do we really mourn? Do we repent? And we're going to see that played out now. All right, so that, that was all of Israel. Now we're going to see that played out in this small tribe, the Gileadites, Everyone's favorite tribe, the Gileadites. All right. And we're going to seek them to do exactly the same thing, that they want salvation, and they're going to get it, whether God agrees or not. Verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. All right. Bad news. You have the Ammonites are camped at their territory. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. All right. If you've been with, the, with us in Judges for a while, uh, you start to see some themes. Uh, why aren't they asking God for deliverance? They've, you know, they've abandoned that plan and said, so, you know, we're just gonna, we need a man. We're going to use our own power, and we're going to find someone who can deliver us whether, whether God has ordained him or not, whether, whether God has called him or not, whether this is God's plan or not, and if he can save us, it doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter what kind of leader he is. He will be our head. Now, we've already seen how abysmal that looks when someone who's power-hungry rises to power so that they can be the head of a tribe. We saw Abimelech. We saw uh, when Gideon did that. All right, this is not a formula for, for success here. And who do they go to? Verse 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Ah, promising. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled with his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead uh, went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've now turned to you, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. All right. Does it sound familiar? All right, this is just a micro of the macro. <laughs> that before, eh, we didn't like this guy because he didn't help us. He didn't get us anything. But now, now that they need deliverance, now they're all too willing to run back to him. And that's where we start to see that, all right, a problem with God becomes a problem with people and a problem with ourselves. And that the, the same heart of idolatry and the same heart of using people in manipulation, uh, it all runs through the same core. We talk about this thing in, uh, in counseling, that the vertical and the horizontal, that they tend to be parallel, that the way we treat God and interact with God tends to be the way we treat with people and interact with them. That the way we, we love and interact with God tends to parallel our in, in our marriages and the way we live those things out. Kids, your love for God is parallel than your love for your siblings. <laughs> the, these things all go together. And if, if the beginning is broken down, it's going to trickle down into all of life. And you're wondering, why can't I just get things right? It's because that the core is wrong. And so what do they do? They go after Jephthah. Do you remember the worthless fellows? Have you seen that before? That was Abimelech's crew. He had some worthless fellows. And remember what he did? And now we're saying, hey, let's go, fi- let's go find some, a guy with worthless fellows around him. He can fight for us. He's probably going to be a great leader. All right, bad news. And now, uh, what should Jephthah have done? All right, if we're saying that, like, okay, Jephthah's kind of like this, like, God figure, and they're coming to him, what should he have said? He should have said, go fight your own battle. You kicked me out. Go, Go work with the idols that you had. How about you go choose my brothers and ask them to fight for you? That's what you deserve. That's how this should have gone down. But the problem is that Jephthah has that same wicked heart. His core is just as broken. And so what does he do? He once again tries to manipulate God and manipulate the situation so that he can get his own salvation. Verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us. If we do not do as you say, and Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. All right. Uh, notice that there wasn't a lot of interaction with God here, except for God to rubber stamp their, their plan. All right. That's, that's often how we interact with God. We, we go and make our plans according to man and his power and we see if we can get God to rubber stamp it. We don't actually include him. And that's where Jephthah comes, and he thinks, okay, I can can gain power here, and if I manipulate God, I can get him on my side, and then I can become this great leader. I can seek my own salvation, which for him was to get back in good standing, to be back to be a good Gileadite that he might be free from his shame and guilt and, and back on top. All right. Do you see the patterns? Israel, Gilead, Jephthah. And it all comes from the same core, this core of, of idolatry and this desire for salvation, not to be salvation before God, but salvation from immediate circumstances and seeking deliverance and for the temporary things. The pursuit of idols, essentially. Right. And once again, we have to ask ourselves, do we see the patterns in our lives? Are they, do they speak to a message? Do they show a core heart? Do they show that we're pursuing something that is, is not the glory of God? That isn't really about praising him. And have you seen patterns in your life that show like, oh, maybe I'm not innocent here. Maybe there's been patterns of idolatry and things that I, I use God for and I use people for and I try to make all the pieces, f- pieces fit together so I can pursue this thing. If we see those things, we have to take it back up and say, okay, I need to get right with God. He needs to get put in the right place. The core heart needs to change. And then that will spill out into the rest of my life. We need a great king to lead us in that. We need a great king who can change our hearts and can break the patterns. We do not get that in Jephthah. Let's continue. All right, so uh, this next section is super boring. (laughs) So I'm going to summarize it as best that I can. All right, so Jephthah, uh, he's fighting the Ammonites. Ammonites, all right, Ammonites. And... He basically gets into a discussion with their king and the Ammonite king comes and he's saying, hey, you took this land from us and so it's time to give it back. That's why we're going to war with you. Now Jephthah, he starts telling the history and he says, well, no. This was never your land. We got this from the Amorites. It was their land. And we didn't want it, but they wouldn't let us travel through their land and they started making war with us and so we have this great god he delivered us and he gave us the land by destroying them that's how we got the land and it has nothing to do with you all right and he does it in like like super bible nerd responses all right like fully quoting like numbers 21 which is like Not everyone's favorite passage, but he just like goes through it and he's laying out all the land divisions and everything that happened and it sounds really good. Like, wow, this guy really knows his Bible. He's really on top of it. And he has all of these reasons and he ends verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chamash, uh, your God gives you to possess? And all the Lord, our God, is dispossessed before us. We will possess. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war with me. The Lord, the Judge, decide this day between the people of Israel, and the people of Ammon. The king of the Amorites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. All right, what is he essentially saying? He's saying. My God will give, give us what, what, what belongs to us. Your God give you what belongs to you. And like, stay in your lane. All right. What do we think of that? All right, it sounds, it sounds really good that he talks about like God is judge and he'll decide this day. But there's a problem. Like, he sounds like, he sounds like a pagan. This is, that's not, that's not good theology. What's good theology? The Lord God has been gracious to you. Our Lord God has been gracious to you to give you your land. You should be content to stay in it because he could take it from you at any point. And our God gave us our land and he's the only real God. So you can pretend to have your God, but you need to stay there or else our God will dispossess you because he's more powerful. All right, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, we both serve great gods. <laughs> and they both give us land. And so keep what your God gave to you and I'll keep what our God gave to us. Alright, we start to see the the trickling of idolatry into his understanding of all of life. And this is a guy who's been steeped in idolatry his whole life. That he was raised under it. And... All right, what, what do we do with that? Just recognizing that this should not be the end of the speech. This is not this great climactic, like, wow, look at this guy. He really understands. No, this should be a, a big, oh, no. That's exactly what the culture says. And all you've done is fit in with the, the world around you. All right, minor sub-point of application here. All right. We live in an idolatrous culture. Don't think that it hasn't affected you. Don't think it hasn't affected me in some senses. All right, those things penetrate and those things start to shape. As they have shaped Jephthah, even as he's blind to it. We're going to see how blind, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was uh, was upon Jephthah. All right, shocking. Shocking. God never promised to do this and the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed from Gilead to Manasseh to Mizpah to Gilead from Mizpah to Gilead to the Ammonites. Great. And Jephthah, he made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. All right. He shouldn't have said that. All right. All right. The Lord was incredibly gracious. This is a guy who was not chosen by the Lord. God never said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to deliver my people. But he gives him the spirit. He had everything that he needed. And yet what does he do? He adds to it this horrible vow. And that whatever comes out of his house, when he comes back victorious, he will offer up as a burnt offering. All right. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them for Aor, uh, Aror, 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 yeah, to the neighborhood <laughs> of Mineth, <laughs> 20 cities, and as far as abel uh, Karim, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the Lord or before the people of Israel. All right, great. Great. He was victorious, which, the God, which God had enabled him to do by the power of the spirit. So why the vow? The story read, It reads beautifully if you take out the vow. it looks exactly how it's planned. But we realize, okay, what do we have here? we have a guy who fits the pattern. And he's not seeking to, to glorify God. He's seeking to find the salvation that he demands. And exactly what he wants, he wants. That temporary salvation, he wants to rise to power. He wants to be the head of Gilead, and he's going to make it happen. By manipulating God like a pagan like someone who doesn't really understand how God works and who doesn't know what God ultimately wills and desires. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months that I might go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Right? Do we realize what happened? Now, a lot of people try to sugarcoat this. And they say things like, well, what really happened was that she went to become a a servant in the tabernacle. Right? It doesn't say that. Or you may say, well, no, if she doesn't weep for her life. She weeps for her virginity. All right, That's because she's from a communal culture. And that if she had a son or a daughter, she could find hope in that, that her life continued on through her offspring. But what is she mourning? She's mourning that her life ends, but there's nothing nothing to go forward that her line ends with her that life has ceased in the communal sense right i i think he really did offer his daughter up as a burnt sacrifice now why because he was a, he was an idolater he was a a follower of the the idols of the nations and he had a plan for how he was going to manipulate this God and how do you manipulate gods how do you get them to do what you want with blood and so as much as I we want to say you know maybe he made a mistake all right, I don't think a cow was going to come out of his front door. And anyone who says that they're 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 making light of the situation. Like regardless of of what it was, he was expecting a human to come out. Maybe not his daughter, but a servant, someone. And we we realize that the point of this you really want to think you think you can manipulate God. You think you can trick him or get one up on him? All right. All of that manipulation comes down on his own head and upon the, the head of his innocent daughter. And it's tragic. And it's horrible. And I'd t- say that because you're all thinking, like, why why would God let this happen? Right? This has nothing to do with God. This is why do the why do the idols of the world demand sacrifice? Because they do. And the whole point of this is not that Jephthah is this great guy. It's just so that no, he's he's exactly like the culture around him. He's exactly like uh, the the gods of the world. He follows the gods of the world, and this is what you do. You sacrifice to get the things that you need and you want. And at this point, we realize, okay, that's, that's what idolatry does. Idolatry draws us to these things, and we, and we lose our minds, and we are willing to sacrifice things that never ought to be sacrificed, and we're willing to destroy things that ought not to be destroyed. We're willing to make promises that ought never to be made promises. And so, uh, okay, applications here. All right, oftentimes the applications here have to do with like being honest and not swearing like, oh, I I swear to God I'll do this or "I, I swear on my mother's grave. That's not what this is about. That's not the instance here. It's not about truth. This is about how do we manipulate and bargain with God. And the lesson here is, don't do it. Don't make vows. Even vows that you think you can keep. It's foolishness. That God is not a God to be manipulated. He's not a God that you can hold in your hand and and use as your, your power source. That we don't say, well, God, if if this, then I'll do that. That that gets in us into loads of danger. And it treats God like he's a pagan god of the world who demands sacrifices. And as long as you make yourself miserable, he'll do what you want so you can get that idol. That's just not the god we worship. And sadly, Jephthah didn't understand that. And the Gileadites didn't understand that. And Israel didn't understand that. Ultimately, what should Jephthah have done? Should he have sacrificed his daughter? Should he have broken his vow? All right, he should have gone to the real God of Israel and cried out and said, All right, I am an utter fool. And I recognize it's my life or my daughter's life. I recognize this is all destruction, but I recognize you are God of mercy and grace. And that you're the God who will provide the sacrifice. You will, you will be a God who, who can cover over foolishness and sin. Provide. Provide a sacrifice. Provide someone to cover my daughter. We think back to Abraham. On the altar with Isaac, and we think, all right, that's the God we know. That's the God who comes down and provides the sacrifice. And I hope that's the God that you know. That you know a God who isn't demanding sacrifices from you, but you know a God who sends Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice. To be the one who who pays the price, who Restores us back to God who allows us to, to walk before him and to know life in him. Jesus is the anti-Jephthah. He's not manipulating God. He is following God and obeying God and suffering and sacrificing himself for God. That is our great king. That is our great Lord. Do you love following that king? Do you love worshiping that king? Do you want him to be lifted up? Is he, is he worthy of all of our life and our devotion? Is he better than the idols? Is he better than the temporary comforts? Is he better than the, the quick fixes? All right, we, we look at the cross. We look at him dying for us, and I hope we can say yes. I hope we can see that the the core of God that runs through everything is grace and love and mercy and faithfulness to his people and a desire to, to sacrifice and pour himself out for his people. That there's far more life in him than in those things that we think are so glorious. That we have a God who does not demand sacrifice but provides it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you as a, a sinful people who often seeks uh, our own desires and either does that independent of you or or even tries to use you for that end Father we ask for your forgiveness We ask for you to to cleanse us from our idolatry to change our hearts and we thank you that Jesus has sent his spirit that he is Ever changing our hearts and he'd also died for all of that sin that we may not be under judgment Father would you help us to know Jesus Christ in all of his glorious grace and mercy that we may worship him as king that we may know this one who sacrificed for us. Would you help us to love him, to worship him, and to follow him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? In Christ's name we pray.